There's an old praise chorus from the 70s that I can remember singing as a teenager that began with the lyrics, it only takes a spark to get what? A fire going. And soon all those around can warm up in its glowing. The fire in that chorus had to do with the love of God. Uh, James will use the same idea of fire, only his theme is our tongue, and he will warn us of another kind of spark, a different kind of fire, and it isn't going to warm us up to any kind of glowing. In fact, it just might instead scorch us and torch us and burn our lives to the ground. In the letter from James, in chapter 3, we now arrive at his most convicting graphic description of the nature and power of the tongue. You knew it was coming. Surprised to see so many people here today. <laughs> James has already told us the tongue is as powerful to control our body as the bit is able to control a powerful horse. You take 550 pounds, which is right around the world record for an Olympic heavyweight lifter to hoist overhead, and you set 550 pounds on the back of one of those Clydesdales that my father used to use on the farm for hauling, and that horse will barely snort displeasure. That same horse can run a mile under a minute. It's a magnificent half-ton specimen of raw power, and yet you can take a little girl and with a bit in its mouth with the reins in her hand, and she can direct that horse wherever she wants to go. The power of that bit is the power of the tongue. James then shifted his analogy to the rudder on a boat, something so small which can direct something so large. In other words, there's no other part of our body. Even the totality of our body Nothing about us and the totality of our being is stronger than that little two-ounce mass of muscle and nerve. Webster defined the tongue as that movable muscular structure attached to the floor of the mouth. <laughs> Trouble is, it comes loose, unhinged. And so what James will do now is he will describe our tongue with at least eight different descriptive phrases. And the view of many, and I would agree, the more and more I study this letter, that this is actually a sermon that was transcribed while he preached it. Because now he just sort of unleashes, and one analogy after another, one metaphor after another, without ever taking a breath, the changing of tenses and, uh, and, and verbs, he will describe for us with great passion what is... No doubt, the greatest challenge, the greatest threat to our spiritual maturity, it is our tongue. The first thing of eight that James is going to say about the tongue is that it is destructive. James chapter 3, we left off the first part of verse 5. Let's pick it up now with the last part of verse 5. See... How great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. He begins by saying, see, literally look. That's, a, that's an exclamation point following that word. This is another imperative. He don't want anybody sleeping through Bible class. And James is saying, take careful note of what I'm about to say. See, look, how great a forest 
is set aflame by such a small fire. It only takes a spark. Just a little spark of fire and a forest can be consumed. Have you ever thought about the fact that fire has the capacity to effectively reproduce itself? It's unlimited as long as it has something to burn. Water, you pour it out and and that's all you get. It doesn't create more water after being poured out, but fire will burn indefinitely. It will spread as long as there is enough flammable material and oxygen. Its destructive power is incredible, fearful. I learned that firsthand. When I was a kid, I poured gasoline in that little cement gutter that sat underneath the downspout on the corner of our house next to that lovely bush. I had no idea what would happen, but I wanted to find out. But what happened? So I poured some gasoline into that gutter and threw a match over toward it. And the whole area just seemed to explode into flame. The flame shot up about four feet. It it, it scorched that cement gutter. It quickly burned out. But then I looked and there was that bush with every leaf withered and hanging limply. And I stood there thinking, what have I done? And then the next question, and what shall be done to me? That That was the bigger question. My father came home and gave me the answer to that question. (laughs) I learned not to play with fire. Fortunately, it was contained within that gutter. Fire can spread and so can words. See, the danger of this analogy of a fire was immediately apparent to James' audience. Because uncontrollable fire was more than likely one of the most feared disasters During his day, people were nearly helpless to stop it. In fact, in my research, I came across one letter translated from Pliny, a Roman historian and naturalist who lived during the time of James. He'd been in a city where a fire had broken out. The city's name was Nicomedia. And he wrote that it consumed one private house after another and buildings. It even consumed the temple of Isis. He wrote, the people were unable to do anything more than stand there and watch. Even up to 1871, much of the city of Chicago was destroyed by fire. It began at 8.30. You probably heard the story. It's true. 8.30 p.m. when a cow kicked over a lantern as it was being milked. The cow belonged to the O'Leary family. That name became famous as a result. That small lantern started the Great Chicago Fire, they called it. It burned over three square miles of the city. It burned down over 17,000 buildings. It left over 100,000 people homeless and took the lives of 300. The fire burned for two days until it, for the most part, burned out with nothing more to burn. And it took the city of Chicago more than $400 million to rebuild. To the reader of James' letter, uncontrollable fire was the most destructive force he could think of. He's reminding us that we've got amazing firepower in our mouths. We all carry around A weapon of mass destruction in our vernacular. There's plenty of proof of that one. 
Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, 27, a worthless man's words are a scorching fire. He gives another model, and this one we should pursue. He writes, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. We use that same analogy today. Man, did, did you hear that guy? Was he ever hot under the collar? Did you see that lady? I watched her as she, as she kept cool. This is the tongue in its reality, and he's just getting started. It's destructive. Secondly, the tongue is depraved. Verse 6, again, the tongue is a fire. Now note this. The very world of iniquity. You thought you had to go to Vegas to get to Sin City. You've got one walking around with you inside your mouth. Is what he's saying. The original word translated world is cosmos. And you need to understand, James will use it three times in this letter. And every time he uses it, he uses it in the sense of a depraved, fallen, sinful world system. You might write system in the margin of your Bible next to world to help you understand this, what he's talking about. He isn't talking about the planet. He's talking about the world's thinking patterns. In its negative sense. The world's values. The world's arrangements. The world's plans. uh, The system of operation by which the world operates in its basest and most evil forms. So in, in light of that, James is saying the tongue is capable of spewing out that kind of evil plan and thinking and arrangement. That kind of sinful system It's capable of spewing out everything that vaunts itself against the plans and the values and the systems of righteousness. The tongue has the potential for any and all kinds of human corruption. It is as corrupt as the values of the world system because it's connected to the heart, right? The heart is desperately wicked. And the world system has man as ultimately the idol and the throne of our own plans and thinking as the preeminent throne. The tongue represents a world of iniquity. And it starts early, doesn't it? You bring a child into the world, you adopt a baby, and while he's growing up, he's learning how to talk. And he's going to learn how to talk by means of two primary influences, mom and dad. And so after a few years, he's going to not only say the words, but he's going to use the same accent. That's on the outside, but on the inside, there's another tutor, and that is his nature, his fallen, depraved nature. And that nature will teach that child far more than an accent. In fact, before he can even mouth the words, he's able to sin with his hands and with his head. Who taught him how to shake his head no in defiance? You didn't say, now sit down, Johnny, and let me teach you how to be defiant by doing this. There you go. Try it again. There, now you've got it. No, you never did. You never had to. Where did he learn to take his chubby little hands and slam them down on the plastic top of his high chair because he didn't like his food. Your moms were thinking he learned that from his father. No, no. His father Adam, maybe. 
Where do you learn how to lie? Mom and dad, you've done nothing but teach them the truth. You've never lied to them. You remember from our last discussion that the tongue is the tattletale of the heart. The tongue constantly tattles on the depraved condition of the heart. And when it speaks, it quickly reveals its connection to a world system of iniquity. So you don't have to teach them how to lie. You've got to teach them how to tell the truth. It's interesting, rather humorous, Spiro Zodiades in his commentary on this verse told a funny story about the little boy who got his verses mixed up, but ended up basically revealing the truth of human nature. He was asked in Sunday school to define what a lie was. What is a lie? He said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of need. <laughs> The truth is, his depraved heart taught him to lie, and his tongue joined in the conspiracy. That's the idea. James goes further. The tongue is also not only destructive and depraved, but thirdly, it is defiling. Notice the middle part of verse 6. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. In other words, if not checked, controlled by the Spirit of God, our entire body gets involved. Defilement is hatched in the heart, touted with the tongue, fulfilled by the flesh. That's the idea. The rest of the body joins in this conspiracy against the holiness of God. And James is not writing to unconverted pagans. He's writing to believing Jews and he's writing to us. This is speech therapy for the saints. And it begins and daily requires the understanding that we all have a speech impediment and it is, it is sin. In fact, James uses the present tense for this verse, defiles. Again, very realistic theology, which we so appreciate. This isn't pie in the sky. This is defilement you battle over and over and over and over again. Now, he isn't, he isn't telling us that. So that we all get a a free pass or an excuse. He's writing that to remind ourselves, to warn ourselves, that apart from the surrender of the bit and the rudder into the hand of the Spirit of God, we're walking around with a spark. It's ready to spread. There's going to be a forest fire. It's waiting to break out and it only takes a spark. Defilement, which will consume us, involve us entirely, James says, is just ahead. He goes on to say the tongue is determinative. Notice the next phrase in verse 6. It sets on fire the course of our life. What does he mean? He's using fire again, which is the negative description of all that is evil in its power uh, used by the tongue. But he's saying that that evil potential sets the course. In other words, it influences the direction of our lives. It can happen with someone else's tongue against you. If your father demeaned you and cut you down with his tongue, that affects you to this day. There are habits you're having to break because that's what you 
heard in your home. The power of the tongue for good or evil can direct a life. Think about it. You were interviewed for a job. Your resume looked like 50 others. They wanted the same job. They graduated from college. You graduated from perhaps the same college. Maybe they got a master's degree in that specialty or science. And 50 others did too. But you said something in that interview. And they hired you. And that has set the course of your life. You think about it this way. You proposed to your sweetheart. And she said yes. I mean, is that a shock or what? She said yes. Took a little convincing, maybe a ring uh, or whatever. It doesn't matter. She said, she said yes. And that one little word, yes, determined the course of your life. And it has been sheer rapture ever since. Amen? <laughs> Amen? I know I said the word rapture. You were thinking of prophecy and you missed the opportunity. Some of you are praying now for the rapture. Good idea. James, James says the tongue is, sets on fire. The tongue sets on fire the course of our lives. What you say with your tongue can change the rest of your life. In fact, your tongue is even now setting the course. An evil tongue makes people around you think that you are in your entirety evil. If you have a dirty tongue, everybody around you thinks of you in your entirety as dirty. If you have a lying tongue, those around you think of you as dishonest. And that plumber you know, and you heard him tell a lie, he's not going to get the contract on your home because you consider him a liar. And that's going to affect him a dozen different ways. See, as one author said it this way, he is considered to be no better or different than his tongue. You say, but wait, it's only vocabulary. Uh, It's only words. No, our speech, James says, determines our reputation, which dramatically affects our lives. Our our speech determines friends and influences and jobs, our spirit, our service. That's what he means. James is speaking categorically. It sets the course of the entirety of our lives. The tongue is destructive, depraved, defiling, determinative. And now by the time you think James might lighten up just a tad, number five comes along, and we'll just say it this way, the tongue is diabolical. Look at the last description of verse six. It, that is the tongue, is set on fire by hell. You've got to be kidding In this negative context, all evil talk, James says, all sinful uses of the tongue is actually fueled by, sourced out of, the fires of hell. 
The evil use of our tongue is the propaganda of hell. It joins in league with hell. Jesus Christ made the connection when he was dealing with the Pharisees and they had just slandered him. Only moments earlier, in John 8, 41, they, they said that, to Jesus that he was born out of wedlock and his mother Mary was a fornicator. And Jesus responded by saying that they were simply proving in what they just said that they were of their father, the devil. Because the devil speaks only in lies. And when he, when he tells a lie, Jesus said, he's speaking his native language. He is both the liar and the father of lies. So when we speak untruth, we are mirroring our old father rather than our new father. The fire that we start with our tongues is actually borrowed. From hell. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? The word for hell here in this phrase is the word Gehenna. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Gehenna, which is fully translated Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. There are only two men in the New Testament who referred to the future eternal home of Satan, the demons, along with all the condemned, as Gehenna. And those two men were Jesus Christ, ten times, and his half-brother James. The Valley of Gehenna, which we need to understand a little bit so we get his picture, lies southwest of the walls of Jerusalem. It's basically a deep gorge. It was used for centuries as sort of what we would think of when we think of a, a landfill or a dump. It's a place where trash was dumped along with the carcasses of dead animals, also the bodies of executed criminals. This is, this is the place Christ would have been thrown had he not been taken by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Slaves kept the fires burning in the valley. It was a place of filth, rotting garbage, this perpetual fire filled with maggots, constant burning flame. And Jesus Christ would use that valley as his primary description of a future place, far worse though similar in that hell is a place where the maggot, the worm, never dies and the fire is never quenched. Mark chapter 9 verse 46. Nothing good comes out of there. Only rotten corruption. Only filth. Only garbage. So James is making the point that when the tongue is used for evil, whether it inflicts suffering or tells a lie or something it shouldn't say, it, it says it is, it is merely reproducing little hells all around. Our tongue is set on fire by Gehenna, by hell. And here's something else. He uses, again, the present active tense for this verb. And, and, and it would have been so blunt and so shocking and so dramatic without any explanation of the tense of the verb for the Greeks or those knowing Greek, the Jews, who, who would read it. And I need to point it out because it's a continual state. Your tongue is constantly set 
on fire by hell. And he's writing to the church. I wanted to come here and be told positive things so I could feel better about myself. Well, this is the truth of God's word, which literally leads to health and it literally leads to hope and it leads to protection. It is literally set on fire by, by hell. So there is a source that allows the fire to burn. You know, this morning I got another illustration. When you drive your automobile, I'm, you've got a fire under your hood. It's controlled. So I got in my pickup truck, backed out of the driveway. I was running late. It was not for spiritual reasons. I was just running late. And I looked at the gas tank, and it was empty. And so I, you know, touch a few buttons, and it, could, it tells me how many miles I can go on empty. And I find that very helpful. I don't know if you've ever used that. And it said zero. <laughs> I got here miraculously. I made it. I prayed the whole way. I came to church in a re- really good state of, of mind because I prayed my whole way here. There, there wasn't any gas, I guess fumes, in that tank. As long as there is, the fire's going to burn in that engine and I'm going to make it to church where I'm supposed to be at 745 this morning. Let me illustrate it another way. We have a fireplace in our living room. It's gas logs. So I know it's, it's real fire, but it's, it's, it's fake at the same time. <laughs> there is a pilot light burning in that fireplace. You can't see it, just a little bitty flame. If you know where to look, you, you can see it. And there's a, there's a switch on our wall, and I can flip that switch, and that pilot light just bursts into flames. And I can turn it off by that switch, which is why we like that fake fireplace. You can turn it on and off whenever you, you want to. Now, as long as there is gas in the line feeding that pilot light, and that line goes down beyond our fireplace, under our deck, underground, all the way back to a... A, a tank that's buried in our backyard, as long as there's gas in that tank, in that line, the pilot light will burn. And all he needs is the flip of a switch, and I got, I've got a fire. This is the analogy here. We're carrying around, as it were, a pilot light. It's small, but it's burning. And all it takes is, is the flip of a, of a carnal switch. Poof. And it can burst into flame. But James is telling us something else. He's saying there's a line feeding that pilot light that goes all the way down, as it were, to hell. And it's an endless supply. So be careful. Well, James isn't finished yet. Do you wish he was? Well, I'll talk faster. Number six, the tongue is disobedient. James moves now to the world of animals. Look at verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. James groups animals into general categories. In fact, he grouped them into pairs, animals that walk and fly and those that crawl and swim. And from within these categories... James is saying, animals have been tamed. 
We've tamed lions and horses and elephants and, and dolphins and parakeets and eagles. We've trained, and I'm speaking generously here as if I had anything to do with it, but we've trained seals to clap and elephants to twirl around, horses to jump on command. And by the way, the word for tame that he uses here does not imply perfect, continuous, calm domestication. The verb simply means to subdue for a purpose. To subjugate. To be under control for one's intention. The wildest, smartest, fastest, strongest animals then have been subjugated for a purpose by the taming hand of mankind. Then James delivers at the end of that verse the stunning news. Look there. But no one can tame the tongue. No one, literally, without any exception, this is a -a one-of-a-kind creature. Because of the fall, mankind has lost dominion over himself. No one can tame the tongue. No one, literally, of men. There's the first inclination of hope. Man can't. God is no mere man. See, James is describing the tongue as it is by nature, not what it can be by grace. Every so often, as it is subdued for the purposes of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God can hold the reins, control the rudder. He can and must do that because none of us can. Why can no one tame the tongue? James provides the answer. Yet another description, number seven, the tongue is dangerous. He writes in verse eight, it is a restless evil. A little bit different nuance here. It's as if the tongue is restless. It's looking for an opportunity to sin. He's telling us the truth. The tongue resists the subjugation of the Spirit of God. He's already used this word resists. Or restless, I should say. In chapter 1, where it's translated unstable. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The word here is translated restless. Good translation. It's unreliable in this context. It's ever prone at any minute to break out of its cage where it has been kept behind bars of teeth and double gates of lips. You go to the zoo and you watch that animal as it paces back and forth. It's restless. Back and forth. He's not doing that for exercise. You open the gate, he's gone. The tongue, one author said, is like a caged wild animal ever pacing uneasily up and down its den. About the time you think it's going to behave, it, it slips out and it runs for it. I've got to show you this video clip. Perfect example of the word restless, what seems to be a controlled animal 
suddenly breaks loose in fury. Video clip was sent to me by a group of guys that study the Bible together called the Babs Guys. And uh, they have fellowship and Bible study. They sent me an email and this video clip. Before I show you the clip, just about ready. But the email reads this. Stephen, got this out a month ago. We'd like to adopt for you this loving cat. He would be an excellent mouser molar, but I would advise you not repeat, do not put Pinky in a harness. Okay? This is Pinky. He's a male cat, domestic short hair. He's available for adoption. He's pet of the week, Placer County Animal Shelter. He's a very loving cat. Pinky, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. We got a wildcat on our hands. You can tell I'm pulling the gate on? Yeah, because I'm not going to grab you. Oh, Dude. He's a very loving cat. I wrote these guys back, by the way, and I said, I will accept this cat if it's declawed defanged, and then stuffed. (laughs) I have not heard back from them. (laughs) It's terrible, isn't it? I had a lady come to me, Edward. Stephen, I got the most loving, good uh, cat. I I believe it. Great. Our, Our tongues are described as destructive, depraved, defiling, determinative, diabolical, disobedient, dangerous. Let me give you one more. Surprisingly, it starts with the letter D. The tongue is deadly. He gets to the end of it, and he writes, the tongue is full of deadly poison. Literally, the tongue is death-bearing. Death-bearing. Not very optimistic, is he? Within the tongue is a death-bearing poison. He's alluding here at this point to the venom of a poisonous serpent that brings about Death. In fact, it's the only time in the Bible, the New Testament, that the word poison shows up. Imagine the potency of this kind of activity is reserved for the tongue. James knew that we would all immediately think of a snake. This is the danger. We're carrying around with us venom as deadly as a cobra. We're carrying around in our mouths a toxin as lethal as cyanide. No wonder Solomon would write, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18.21. So choose life. Choose life-giving words. If you haven't picked up on it by now, the battle of the tongue, the war of words, these daily skirmishes over our speech will not be over until the day we die. But I hope you're picking up as well that the battle is worth it. The stakes are so high, so don't give up and don't give in. Another paragraph from Thomas Manton, that 17th century Puritan pastor and author 
who wrote on this particular text. He said, our difficulties and our impossibilities regarding this battle with our tongue is established so that we may continually run to God. He wrote, although we have lost our power, God has not lost his. Weakness does not exempt us from duty, though we cannot bridle it. God will. And so daily, sometimes hourly, we run to him with fresh confession, fresh surrender for fresh control, which is exactly what he wants. It is for our good and our progress in this matter of divine speech therapy, which advances us in spiritual maturity. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that, and I close with this. He said, all of life is repentance. Mark that down. All of life is repentance. Repentance isn't just something you felt or did when you came to faith in Christ. It isn't just an act that you exercise after sinning or failing the Lord. It is life. All of life is repentance. Which means then that all of life is forgiveness. Continual forgiveness. Present active and negative. I said I'd quit with Luther. Let me quit with the Apostle John. He said it this way. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. Present active. It is continuous. The blood of Jesus Christ continually, never stopping, continuously cleanses us from every sin. So don't give up because the crosswork of Jesus Christ has not and will not. If Jesus Christ will continually cleanse us, then we can continually confess. The gas line might reach down to hell, but the bloodline is going to take us to heaven. Amen? I'll quit with that. Thank you, Father, that you have given us the mirror of the Word. And when we truly understand it and submit to it, We know that this mirror does not tell lies. And in that is conviction. But in that is the glory of Christ. In that is our own vile nature. And your ongoing, even at this very moment, cleansing. So can we do anything other than praise you? For though we are sinners, we are redeemed by such a Savior. And we ask, Spirit of God, that even in just the next few minutes, we choose life-giving words of encouragement to those around us, of edification, hope, and health. Thank you for making us aware that this is an ongoing battle. And the ongoing need, not only for surrender to the Spirit, but ready confession for life is repentance. And oh, how we long and groan 
for the day when we will be glorified and that nature done away. Until then, thank you for the privilege, even in gathering today, to use our voices to do their best in honoring and glorifying you. May we take that beyond these walls. Thank you.